6 this evening, I was a very hopeful man. I had tried all day to contact General Hill, and he hadn't checked in at the Stevens, and I figured possibly he wouldn't show up and I'd have a chance to give my paper over again. <laughs> the General disappointed me. He's here. And we're glad to have him with us for many reasons. He has the feel of battles because he's a soldier. He's a man who has an enviable war record. He has been honored by our government, by the French government. He served in World War I and World War II. His citations of merit are so many that I'd embarrass him if I read them to you. He's a historian. He's the head of state college president at Superior, Wisconsin. He's going to talk on a, a moated subject tonight. You know, usually we have men talk about battles. Then you can only blame one general for losing it or possibly one group for losing it, and one group can take credit for winning it. But here we've got the sea force in besides, and there's naval men also, so we ought to have a swell time placing it around here, there, and, and the other place tonight after the general finishes talking. It gives me great pleasure to introduce General Jim Dan Hill. General Hill. Mr. Chairman and uh, fellow enthusiasts for Civil War history, it's a real pleasure for me to be here. I've looked forward to this for some time. I would have liked very much to have been with you when Lloyd Lewis would have been here and I could have met him. It's one of my regrets that I never had the pleasure of meeting him, but like all of you, I've greatly admired him and his work. Of course, uh, being in the history profession, I have known Herb Keller for some years, and he's the fellow that warned me about coming down here. I said, how carefully should I prepare any presentation for this group? And he says, oh, don't worry about it, says they will get out notices what you're going to talk about. They'll all read up on the subject, and when you get through, they'll all bound up and disagree and ask you a hell of a lot of questions, and then while they're arguing why you and I can sneak out and have a drink. <laughs> that was the plan of campaign when I came in, and now Keller is not here. Of course, I'm looking for volunteers. Uh, it's a real pleasure to uh, know that Major Merriam is in the audience. I suppose that rank would be about right. Maybe Colonel, I don't know. I believe you call him an alderman down here. Your uh, chairman, in mentioning his work as a historian, I thought was unduly brief. Uh, for my money, and I said so in a little informal review at the time the book was published, Merriam's book on Dark December is the first of many excellent books that will be written about the Battle of the Bouge. And I have a hunch that many of the excellent books of the future are going to be cribbed from Dark December. Uh, that really is one of the good books. I believe you were in the Seventh Armored, is that right? Is my memory playing me right or not? Is that right? I had the pleasure of supporting the Seventh Armored when you attacked southeasterly towards St. Vith. I've been trying to think of your artillery commander's name ever since. That was a very fine division, and I certainly think that you have presented to the public the most complete grasp of a very difficult battle. 
a battle that the men in it didn't know they were losing until they read the headlines that were reprinted in the Stars and Stripes from the New York papers. And of course, I should have liked very much to have met Dr. Eisenschimmel. I was in hopes that I might meet him. I've been delighted by reading his works on the Civil War. I uh, wanted to tell him if he had been here tonight that his book on why was Lincoln murdered was the most perfect case of innuendo I've ever encountered. <laughs> on the part of a district attorney who had a rather weak case. But I didn't want to argue with him because he has a mastery of facts to support the innuendo. And not long ago, as I was flying over Texas, we passed over the little town of Granbury. I punched the pilot and says, look down there. He says, what about it? I said, well, there's a theory that John Wilkes Booth was not killed in the barn by Boston Corbett, but that he escaped and <clears throat> became the first uh, number one drinking man of that cow town of Granbury. And while he was there, he talked to Finnis L. Bates, and he built up the story that he was John Wilkes Booth under the name of John St. Helen. He says, where do you get all that stuff? I says, well, I don't know, but I'm waiting for Eisenschimmel to write up the story. I think that that is something that he should give to his attention. I really think that in Dr. Eisenschimmel, you really have an enthusiastic student of history. And I'm not sure that his case of innuendo uh, doesn't have some merit. But if I were on the jury, I would hate to uh, follow through on the idea. I'm saying this for his benefit since he ducked out on this speech. I'll teach these people not to be here. Now the particular problem in hand, uh, they tell me that the way to whip this problem of being questioned and criticized and browbeaten by people who have read more on the subject than you have is to make a speech so darn long that they're all worn out and tired and leave before you get through. So I'm warning you right now that I'm starting a campaign of attrition. And if you're planning to browbeat me when I get through, you're gonna have a long wait. I want to explain further that I make no pretensions to being an authority on the Red River campaign. I have not written a book on the subject. I don't ever intend to write a book on the subject. The only reason that I'm here tonight is that I made a speech on the subject to the Milwaukee Club and your chairman picked me up on the rebound. And the reason I made the speech to them was because I could prepare a 30 or 40 minute discussion on that easier than anything else. It so happened that during the 1940, when I was a National Guard Colonel, of the 120th Field Artillery of the 32nd Division, we were sent to Alexandria, Louisiana for training. This was in 40, before Pearl Harbor in December of 41. We had a very charming division commander, General Fish. I'm sure that General McCloskey knows him because like General McCloskey, he was an artilleryman and a good one. We got down there among the Southerners and uh, they began pointing out to General Fish where this man from Wisconsin, Bailey, had built that dam that rescued the gunboats. 
They began talking about how us Southerners whipped hell out of the damned Yankees in the Red River campaign. So one evening I ran into General Fish and he said, Jim Dan, uh, you're a historian, uh, allegedly. Being a lawyer, he never stuck his neck out on a flat statement. <laughs> he says, I wish that you'd scurry around here and uh, look up the landmarks and stash this out on a road map so that I can discuss this Red River campaign adequately with these Southerners. Says, I want it fixed up so that when I pass a crossroad before they say, that's where General Taylor deployed the second Louisiana cavalry and did so-and-so, I want to say a very interesting little battle took place over there and says, then I'll tell them about it. Well, he was a charming man, a splendid soldier, and the kind of a fellow that you just enjoyed working for. So I took a couple of weekends off, went down to the University of Louisiana, LSU at Baton Rouge, browsed around a bit in the libraries. I brushed up on it a bit, got a staff car, and rode all over uh, Louisiana when I should have been doing something else. And finally, I handed him a voluminous set of notes along with a road map properly marked so that he could do his stuff. I don't know how he came out. He must have uh, browbeaten those Southerners rather well with that map because he told me that his historical troubles were all ended. And with that as a base, and since some of the fellows in Wisconsin knew about it, I was dragged in to review this campaign on a basis of my reconnaissance in preparing a set of notes for General Fish in order that he might get along with his new neighbors. And uh, I hold no brief for either side. If any of you wish to disagree with me on anything, that's quite all right with me. I uh, intended that this be a little map problem, since I hear that you gentlemen are all armchair tacticians. And I've prepared a few little maps here, and there may be enough to go around. Actually, you have a little larger audience here tonight than I was expecting. There should be uh, at least a map for every two people. The desirability of that map is uh, necessary as a part of the narrative. And because this campaign is essentially a campaign of river lines, river support, troop movements uh, along interior lines, concentration against this force and that force. The actual climactic battle which was fought at Mansfield, Louisiana, and which is considered the decisive battle of the campaign, is really of minor significance. The defeat at that battle was foreordained by nature of the terrain and by nature of the advance and by nature of the general deployment of troops long before the first shot was fired. Furthermore, the uh, campaign is one of the lesser known campaigns in the Civil War because very few people got any fame or credit out of it. As a matter of fact, it was one of the campaigns that was thoroughly and adversely investigated by Congress. Generally, at that time, the eyes of the people were upon Virginia and East Tennessee, where some real rough fighting was going on. There were only two reputations at stake on the northern side. Those were the reputations of Porter as a flotilla commander and Banks 
As an Army commander, and since Banks' uh, reputation had suffered considerably at the hands of Stonewall Jackson in the Valley campaigns, there was not much to be salvaged as far as his reputation was concerned anyway. Another thing is the American people don't ordinarily care to review failures. And I think that's another reason they have ignored the campaign. There is no particularly voluminous literature of the campaign. Anyone in this room could uh, tell me the sources as well as I can tell them to you. Of course, the uh, old rebellion records, the Navy records, General Dick Taylor's book, <clears throat> Destruction and Reconstruction, which incidentally is one of the literary gems that came out of the post-war South and is generally forgotten. That's one of the best books on the Southern side, and it's a nice book to have in your library. The investigations of the conduct of the War Committee report is very voluminous on this campaign, and it is loaded up with all of the uh, uh, rumors and reports and so forth, as well as the official statements. There are a number of ephemeral accounts. Bailey's Dam at Alexandria has attracted quite a few articles. Of course, the battles and leaders of the Civil War gives various accounts of it, uh, one by one of Banks' staff officers, the other by Kirby Smith, and I believe Admiral T.O. Selfridge, who was a naval officer with Porter, has a very good account. The best single account that I've run into is a master's thesis at LSU unpublished, uh, which lays the thing on the ground pretty clearly. And most of what I have here tonight are my warmed-over notes from that master's thesis. If you'll take your uh, pencil and mark up that map as I go along, it might make it a little more intelligible. If we take the coastline here, Louisiana Delta, along to Sabine Pass, no, Sabine in Texas, and down past Galveston, and then down to Brownsville. Of course, in terms of the Staff College, the most dominant piece of the terrain of wood in that region would be the Mississippi River. And of course, the Red River uh, comes in on it like this, with let us say Alexandria about there, and finally goes off something like that with Arkansas fitting in like this. and the boundary between Texas and Louisiana, something like that. Very rough sketch. This is the Sabine River and of course should flow into Sabine Bay, right about there. This is Arkansas, Texas, and of course Louisiana, Mississippi, and I suppose Tennessee might be up here somewhere. Vicksburg would be about there. I suppose Baton Rouge would be along about here, wouldn't it? And Alexandria about here. I suppose Shreveport would be along about here. This isn't a very good river line there, but it'll serve our purpose. Now on your map, there are three army headquarters that dominate this campaign. And I suggest that you have a command post flag at Vicksburg, and although the commanding general there was a two-star major general, Sherman, 
he commanded an army, so we'll give him four stars. The Army of Tennessee. Here at New Orleans is another Army command post commanded by a major general. We'll give him four stars, and that is Banks, the Army of the Gulf. And here at Shreveport, we have a Confederate command post, four stars, commanded by Kirby Smith, uh, commanding all the Army forces in the Trans-Mississippi West of the Confederates. Now the story really begins with July the 4th, 1864, when Vicksburg fell, and in the language of somebody, the waters of the Father of Waters flow untroubled to the sea, or something like that. And shortly thereafter, as a matter of fact, that was the 4th of July, the waters were still being troubled a little bit around Port Hudson, because as late as the 8th of July, Banks, with the Army of the Gulf, was opening up Port Hudson in this region here. And he had with him the Army of the Gulf. So when Port Hudson falls, and he was supported by Farragut from the Gulf, this army was supported by Porter from up north. So July the 8th, the rivers were open to ocean-going ships of Farragut's fleet from the south, and river steamers of Porter's flotilla from the north. And of course, those two victories released a tremendous amount of military manpower of the Union in the West. The question, of course, was what do they do with the manpower? They had accomplished their mission. What is the next mission? If you read Grant's memoirs, you will find that Grant argued, and bear in mind that at this time, here in eastern Tennessee, they were really fighting a very bitter campaign. Grant and Sherman are said to have argued that these armies should be pinched out, to use a modern expression, and should be redeployed against Mobile. Penetrating northward from there and across from here, they would outflank these positions here and would have made the Atlanta campaign an actuality much sooner. And that is what Grant wanted, that is what Sherman says he wanted, and that is what Banks says he wanted. Some have said that Porter favored a river campaign because after all, what are you going to do with a river gunboat on a high seas operation? It's instinctive for officers to want to utilize the weapon that they command. I've never been able to pinpoint what Porter's feelings were and never particularly cared. In this campaign, we aren't concerned with who made the bad decision as much as we are concerned with the actual operations. The next item is, if you can't do that, Halleck in Washington called for a campaign to liberate Texas. Now, as a matter of fact, Texas was getting along all right then, the same as they are now, and they didn't give a darn whether they were liberated or not. But Texas had to be liberated. Furthermore, it is said that it wasn't Halleck's idea either, that it came right from the White House. It has even been suggested that the idea came from Seward's office, the Secretary of State. 
After all, Maximilian was doing pretty well in Mexico at that time. There's no doubt but what the flow of cotton out from these ports along the Texas coast, and there was a flow of uh, gold to Europe from the sale of cotton. Later on, E. Kirby Smith, after the war, was accused that he was supposed to plan this campaign with the North, that he was going to let them capture millions of bales of cotton, and it would be uh, sold, and he would withdraw, or make the campaign a success by not resisting, and um, that the only reason he fought was that Dick Taylor, an incorruptible Southerner, happened to be in command at the last minute of the field forces in uh, Louisiana, and that he's the guy that messed up the conspiracy. Kirby Smith's answer to that cannard so I've been told, was that he was buying cotton at five cents a pound and was selling it at 60 cents a pound and was putting the gold on deposit for agents in Europe. And if he had wanted to knock down any money, he would have knocked it down without any connivance with any damn Yankees that might have double-crossed him. Furthermore, he points out rather vigorously that long before the campaign was ever dreamed up, that Dick Taylor was in command in Louisiana before he got there. So the dates just didn't add up. Personally, from my reading on it, there's no corruption from the southern side, uh, notwithstanding those post-war canards. Furthermore, I don't think there was any corruption from the northern side. It's true, cotton commissioners did accompany the army part of the way. We'll get back to them. And it's true that the Navy under the then existing laws, got prize money for ships that they captured and uh, supplies that they liberated and sold. The prize money law for the Navy was not repealed until after the Spanish-American War. So naturally, uh, the Navy had a vested interest in cotton if they could get it, and probably the commissioners were prepared to buy up any of this cotton and distribute the prize money. The taint of corruption that is uh, supposed to have associated with the campaign, I frankly have failed to find it, though I'll admit that I haven't looked into it too deeply. Uh, my interest is purely a matter of field operations. My mission was to give a division commander a conversational knowledge of the campaign, not to assess any blame or to look into any skullduggery. And if I give you a conversational knowledge of the campaign, then I will have more than accomplished my mission. Although Keller assures me that all of you fellows came in here knowing more about it than I do. Now, <clears throat> with these points in mind, bearing in mind that Halleck and the president are calling for a campaign to liberate Texas, probably with a diplomatic eye on Mexico, primarily, and probably with a secondary eye on cotton. And furthermore, we know that Lincoln was wanting to liberate as many states as he could to set up governments like the one that Steele was setting up in Arkansas, like Banks was setting up in Louisiana, and like was set up uh, later on in other states. That policy is, had already started. So it could have been a matter of restoring states to the Union here were some states that were thinly garrisoned. It could have been uh, to dry up the flow of cotton to Europe. 
Probably it was diplomatic. I think the Seward theory is a good theory. I suppose when we know more about uh, Miss Carroll, the woman strategist of the cabinet that we hear so much about, I don't know whether her papers will throw any light on this or not. Personally, there's something about that myth that kind of nauseates me. I'm going to believe it when I see it. If we've got to blame this on somebody, we might as well blame it on her in the White House. Anyway, having decided to liberate Texas, Banks' plan was this, the shortest line between two points. And that is from, go from Port Hudson west. Now, of course, uh, those of you who have motored down in that country know what he ran into in that era be before there were concrete highways and so forth. Most of his operations in that direction were in the nature of a sort of a reconnaissance in force. So uh, we will bend this line back uh, and indicate failure. He pinched out an expedition. I'm speaking from memory now. This is outside of the operations. He pinched out 5,000 men on transports, what we would call now an amphibious task force, and sent them against Sabine Pass. When we have the movement against Sabine Pass, they made the mistake of trying to force a little battery commanded by a chap named Dick Dowling, one of the heroes of Texas. You'll see a statue of him somewhere in Houston. Uh, with a little coast defense battery, he gave them such a mauling that that task force never got ashore. That was before the days of the LST. So that expedition was a complete failure, and it was uh, repulsed in September 1863. In uh, fall, November 1863, Banks says, let's try it another way. So this time, he made a deeper envelopment, seaborne, and he went clear to Brownsville and landed a full army corps. Uh, they captured Brownsville without any difficulty, planted the flag deep in Texas. Then they double-tracked back up to Corpus Christi, and there they landed a division of the 13th Corps under T.E.G. Ransom, and they seized the coastal defenses, began radiating out over Texas, and had all the appearances of a successful campaign. In my opinion, if they had continued that, they might well have accomplished their mission of at least liberating Texas. Whether they would have gotten to the uh, cotton storehouses of the Red River Valley, I don't know. But Halleck calls that off, and although by the end of 1863, this was going very good. And in January 1864, Banks got a specific order by Halleck to discontinue his seaborne operations against the Texas coast. And in that communication, he outlined the grand campaign of the Red River advance. So Banks did what we would call today a regroupment. He closed out this operation here, leaving light garrisons on the coast. He left an appreciable force at Brownsville, the rest of the 13th Corps at Brownsville, as a thorn in the flesh of the 
Texans, and bear in mind that that border point was a key point in the flow of uh, medical supplies and other light contraband of war. He closed that out and he began regrouping his soldiers near the coast, uh, near a place called Brashyar, near a town then known as Franklin. And that town may have been named for Franklin, who commanded the 19th Corps at that time. So here at, uh, in the vicinity of the coast, if we were following modern staff procedure, we would put a goose egg. And in that goose egg, we would put a command post flag with three stars, and we would call that the XIX, the XIX Corps reinforced because that is the main striking force. Also with that corps is Ransom's division from down here at Corpus Christi. Also with that corps is a brigade of 3,000 of Ellett's Marines, Marine Brigade that had been operating up around Vicksburg. Well, obviously, uh, General Banks can't carry on a very fine campaign with one of his strongest corps down here at Brownsville. So he says, the high command says, we will reinforce you by about 20 gunboats from Vicksburg, and they will bring with them a corps from Vicksburg reinforced by a division. And this would, we'd call this today, we'd call that the A.J. Smith Task Force. Actually, it was about 10,000 men. It was supposed to be 10,000 men, as usually the G1 cheated, and they gave him 8,935. <laughs> that particular corps was the 16th Corps commanded by A.J. Smith, lesser division, and that division was replaced by E. Kilby Smith's division of the 17th Corps. General McCloskey, I thought that this business of shuffling units and mixing them up was something that they invented in Europe, but I find that they did the same thing in this campaign. This unit would come down the river to the mouth of the Red River and would come up the river at the same time that this striking force is coming up here. And they would form a junction at Alexandria. And at Alexandria, there was a corps commander, Dick Taylor, commanding two divisions of the Confederate Army, uh, Mouton's division on the left in this region, and Walker's division on the right in this region. Those divisions, this division, had been patrolling the rivers this division had been keeping a cavalry contact with the disassembly area down here. That movement was launched in March 1864. I would say, by and large, that the coordination was pretty good. I think that the staff college at Leavenworth would give a, an approved solution on this. Porter's fleet started south with the task force A.J. Smith the 12th of March. This main striking force started north the 14th of March. 
This force immediately pressed this division back to here. This force came up here and hit Fort DeRusty. And these ships were along here. They put a, a part of their troops on the ground and kept some of them on the ships. Fort DeRusty fell without too much action. And Kirby Smith here at Shreveport, with the characteristic of a distantly removed army commander, didn't feel that his field commander did quite so well. He thought that uh, this division should have kept these people from capturing that fort in reverse. But before you could say anything hardly, the Federals were up to Alexandria, and Dick Taylor was moving his command post to a plantation up here, and he was having trouble getting this division on the south side of the river, uh, which he accomplished with reasonable success, uh, making the entire Confederate defenses along here with a cavalry screen in front and on the north side of the river uh, they had what we would call today task force Lydell which was about the equivalent of a brigade according to the then standards by the way I don't know how you gentlemen read the military history of the Civil War but when I read a corps in Civil War history I say to myself a division when I read division in a Civil War history, I say to myself, a regiment. And where I read brigade in Civil War history, I say to myself, a battalion. And where it says a regiment in Civil War history, I usually say to myself, a company. And that gets it just about on the modern yardstick. Because in their uh, organization of that day, I would say that their core came nearer being our modern triangular division than um, did their division. According to our standards, the, both the northern and the southern armies were highly overranked. How many are Usually in this particular operation, Franklin's Corps, which had no detachments from it, had about 11,500 men when the campaign started. While the troops were along in this area, the cavalry commander with this task force here was a chap named Albert Lee. His cavalry strength, he had a cavalry division, and his strength was about 4,700 in his cavalry division. It was a new division, recently constituted, and had had very little attrition and was at full strength. Lee uh, showed his one flash of genius. Uh, he caught the Confederate cavalry screen on a wintry night or on a bad weather night all on one plantation and bagged them all and left Dick Taylor without any scouting facilities and Dick Taylor withdrew along the highway back toward Shreveport. In the meantime, this general here had not been entirely asleep at the switch. We'll take a look at his forces. Let's suppose that this is the Arkansas River. We'll assume this is the town of Little Rock. When the campaign started, there was a General Steele. Federal Army had what we would call a corps at that place. He had two divisions of infantry. One of them recruited in Arkansas, 
some colored troops, some uh, renegade southerners and whatnot, called the Frontier Division. It was not considered by its own commander a very potent unit. Uh, he also had a cavalry screen, a cavalry brigade holding points along the river, a cavalry division holding points along the river. He also, here at Fort Smith, had a brigade of cavalry. So you see, uh, Kirby Smith here had something to worry about besides this coming up here. And bear in mind that Kirby Smith had cause to worry about this corps down at Brownsville. It would be very easy for them to renew this offensive. Uh, here at Galveston, John B. Magruder, who had figured earlier in Virginia campaigns, had what we would call today a corps, and he was stripped as this movement started. He was cut to 2,300 men, and he was told to concentrate everything north. And the biggest unit that he had was a division of Texas cavalry commanded by a clerk of the Supreme Court named Tom Green. Tom Green was one of those fabulous characters that you run across his name in strange places. He commanded a regiment of rangers, as I remember it, in the Mexican War. And somebody someday should do a biography of that fellow. In this campaign, I think he showed himself to be probably one of the best cavalry commanders uh, that ever gave a mount command to a bunch of troopers. He was told to press north and march on Marshall, a key town there with a highway going off to it, and be prepared to come over here and reinforce. Here at a place called Camden, there was another corps commander named Price. You've all heard of him. He had a peculiar command, and his mission was to block this fellow. And he had a cavalry regiment there under the well-known uh, division, under a fellow named Maxie. It was a nondescript outfit. He had a brigade of Choctaw Indians in it. And when they got in the clutch in this campaign, he, Kirby Smith, sent him a message says, come south and bring everything, even the Indians. There was also a Missouri Cavalry Division, Confederate, under a fellow named Marmaduke, and another Cavalry Division of Arkansas troops named Fagan. And they had missions in there. And in this vicinity, there were two infantry divisions Parsons Division, Tappan's Division, and these were pooled under a General Churchill and told to fall back on here to meet this menace. Now the question comes in your mind, why didn't somebody tell General Steele to get out of his headquarters and put the pressure on these fellows to keep them from doing that? The answer is that the campaign was pretty well coordinated. Steele did have those orders. Steele did kick his men out of their billets. He did put them on the road, and they did begin putting the pressure on these deployed, or generally in position, cavalry divisions. 
and they began under that pressure and also to shorten their own lines they began falling back these two divisions making rapid time southward at the same time this cavalry division is coming here and at the same time that Dick Taylor with two divisions Walker's division on the right Mouton's division on the left without with his cavalry re regiment captured he has continued to fall back along the river here there is the picture from the southern side any questions on that you can see that Kirby Smith had the well-known situation of the interior lines and is prepared to make the most of them. To uh, hasten on with the campaign, if you look at your map, you see that Alexandria here is in Rapides Parish. Uh, this along here is a highway and this is the river. That is called Rapides Parish because of some rapids in the river. They delayed the campaign until the river was on a rise because of the size of the gunboats. But the river did not rise as rapidly as they thought, and when they got to Rapides Parish at Alexandria, or to the rapids in Alexandria, they had difficulty in getting across the rapids there, and they had to leave seven of their more powerful gunboats below the rapids. They got uh, 15 or 20 of their medium size and larger gunboats over as the river rose. They got about 30 of their transports and troop carriers over. So of course they did the logical thing. They unloaded the heavier transports, did a portage with it, loaded them on the smaller transports, and preparatory to the advance, they opened up a base of supplies here at a place called Grand Ecor, which is on your little map. Now, of course, you can't go off and leave these supplies. You can't uh, leave this in a hostile country. So he immediately lost one division of Franklin's Corps, Glover's division, to garrison that point. I think that the Command General Staff School would say that he put too many men on that job. 4,000 and some odd for that job with his gunboats dominating the river pretty well. And with his new railhead, we would call it, or riverhead, it's Grand Decor, up close to Natchitoches. And by the way, there's nothing there now. And if you should go down there and try to follow the river the way it was then, some of the places are, uh, you can't find them. Some of the plantations, the rivers cut through them, the rivers change courses. It's very hard to find. With the new railhead here, some of the troops on the ships some of them marching. They made a new supply dump here, detached some more troops, some of them to the north to block this fellow. He lost 2,200 infantry and 1,700 cavalry on that mission, which, of course, bleeds his troops, his uh, striking force again. Then with what's left, on um, the uh, 6th of April, he starts out on a single road, this single road here, on Shreveport. At this point here, a staff officer came from General Sherman and says, I want Task Force Smith back. You've had it long enough. 
Task Force Smith must return by the 10th of April. It's needed up here in Tennessee. Banks had to make a uh, split decision, and he decided that he was within four days' march of Shreveport. And he would go ahead and defy orders, and he talked it over with Smith, and everything was okay. So they sent Porter up here to a place called Springfield Landing to set up a new supply base as they marched along the road and they counted on being in Shreveport or having a showdown battle within four days. In the meantime, Dick Smith, or Dick, uh, that's the fellow that most people in the Army drink with, uh, Dick Taylor had fallen back to Mansfield right here and had been reinforced by Green. And Green began harassing these troops as they marched along very early in their progress and did a magnificent job. In fact, his screening there was terrific. His screening was so complete that the Federals had no uh, knowledge that uh, how much Taylor had been reinforced and they had no knowledge that Taylor was deploying on a little rise of ground three miles south of Mansfield where the fields of fire were exceptionally good and intended to have a showdown. So that his line of march on this single road was two days long. He had the head of his column was here when the tail of his column was moving out here. He was cluttered up pretty heavy with baggage. His cavalry commander uh, completely uh, outgeneraled by Green. And finally, they find themselves on the morning of April the 8th, confronted by uh, Dick Taylor's entire two divisions, deployed with the cavalry which had been harassing them, had withdrawn and was on the front, as good cavalry could be. And furthermore, unknown to the Federals, these two divisions from here had Something I hadn't counted on, it cramps my style a little bit. It would probably cramp yours. There's nothing that dis disconcerts a person who is in the habit of free speech, like finding the belt on the These gadgets going. It's a pretty trick on people with one of those gadgets. Um, and I got my mother and the father at the table, and got my mother to begin apologizing for her drunken half-brother. And after we had gotten all of the family skeletons thoroughly rattled, we went into the front room and with my father and mother sitting there, we dusted off the machine and played the conversation back to her. To keep from being disinherited en masse, we destroyed the film in her presence. To get on with this battle, uh, under any staff estimate, the advantage is here. This man is strung out in a column that is at least a day and a half long. He has not kept his cavalry deployed. He has not overrun the country. Um, they didn't get off the road. Now, if you've been down in that country, you know why he didn't get off the road. 
you've got to have real brush people to get off the road in that country. I remember during the maneuvers down there, if I may digress a moment, we had an Englishman attached to us. And early one morning, the terrain down there is awful. You could park a six-by-six six truck out under trees on dry ground. It looked like dry ground when you parked it there, and then you come back in the morning, and your truck would be right down on the axles. To show you the difficult terrain, I'd had some batteries in position uh, less than three hours, and when time to get them out, we had to run a winch line from the highway to drag them out. And an English artilleryman was standing there, and uh, one of these observers, and every once in a while, as my men would uh, labor and drag the stuff out, and I would stand there and needle them, why, I'd hear this Englishman make a clucking noise, you know, every once in a while, and, and that clucking noise kind of needle me. <laughs> And uh, being uh, early in the morning and in an irritable disposition, I went over and said in rather unprintable language, just how in the hell would the Royal Artillery do it any differently? <laughs> and he says, oh, I, I, I wasn't criticizing at all, so I, I think it's marvelous the way they're doing. I says, well, that's very good, but what's the idea of this? He says, did I say something critical? I says, well, you didn't say anything, but I don't like this clucking noise you're making. Oh, he says, uh, that, uh, you mean this, uh, did that irritate you? I says, yes, it did. If you're criticizing my men and guns, that irritated me. Oh, he says, I was just being critical of the terrain. Such a place to hold a maneuver. <laughs> I says, well, where would you hold a maneuver in Europe? Ah, we don't have terrain. Uh, we wouldn't hold a maneuver in terrain like this. I says, you have terrain like this in Europe, don't you? Oh, yes, yes, but we always hold it elsewhere. Well, now, <laughs> I think that that's one thing wrong with uh, European tactics, if you want my opinion. Too many of their maneuvers have been held elsewhere. I will say this, anybody that can keep a unit mobile in Louisiana can keep it mobile anywhere. Well, to get on with these fellows, the uh, cavalry did run into this. Early in the morning of the 8th, they did deploy two brigades. Quickly, Ransom's division came up and they deployed two more infantry brigades. The strength of these four brigades on the line was probably in the neighborhood of 6,000. Dick Taylor had 11,000 already deployed. Their cavalry uh, of the two units bickered with one another a bit. The minute that the head of the column was held up, Banks rushed forward and um, left orders for them to hold the Confederates in position until he brought up the rest of his column and deployed, and he probably intended to uh, spend the day deploying and make a dawn attack the next day. Unfortunately, he had not been to the command general staff school, and he did not keep notes on actions and orders of Major General A, as the staff courses there used to be. But that seems to have been his plan. There is some doubt as to who decided in the Confederate Army to attack. But about 4 p.m., the Confederates got tired watching this storm brew on their front, and Dick Taylor says that he ordered the attack about 4 p.m., some of the Louisiana people, with a yen for a touch of glory, says that General Mouton did it uh, without orders, 
Uh, certainly, Kirby Smith didn't intend any battle to be fought there. He intended that there would be a reconnaissance in force and a delaying action. Because, after all, Kirby Smith is still looking over his shoulder at this fellow who has already gotten down to Camden. Steele is pressing him up there. But be that as it may, Dick Taylor says he, and he was the commander on the ground, says he launched the attack, and they met with tremendous success. They swept these four brigades from in front of them. They folded up around the road. They captured the baggage, the guns, and everything down to a little town named Point Pleasant, about nine or 10 miles down the road. Now, if you ever visit down there, don't go to the present town of Point Pleasant. The thing is not even in the same parish where it ought to be. And if you uh, get off the roads and spend two or three hours, why well, you may find a bunch of brick that used to be the schoolhouse at Old Point Mount Pleasant, or Pleasant Hill, my error, at Pleasant Hill. Well, now, obviously, as they throw the, the north back, the north is in position to deploy forces at Pleasant Hill. And General Emory of the, uh, and General Franklin of the 19th Corps did deploy forces there. And General A.J. Smith uh, was given quite a bit of credit here. And in the next day's battle, at this point, the Southerners were under the same disadvantage that the Northerners had been here. And they found themselves severely repulsed. By this time, Kirby Smith had come down from Shreveport, and in the battle at Pleasant Hill, this Churchill force was committed. And Kirby Smith says at Pleasant Hill he was completely defeated, and that he was planning to pick up his pieces and go back to uh, concentrate around Shreveport and be prepared to fight another battle. While they were planning their retreat, their intelligence came that the North was continuing the retreat and that they too were in chaos. They withdrew to around Grand Decor. In the meantime, this flotilla of ships were in trouble. And Green gathers up his cavalry and goes over to Blair's Landing, fortifies the bluff, and gives them a battle there in which Green was killed. And the command was taken over by Horton. Uh, this outfit continued in trouble and they continued to send men afloat and back to Alexandria and along the highway to afloat and went into trenches at Grand Ecor. From there on, the story is comparatively simple. Kirby Smith took his pinched out Churchill's division, pinched out Walker's division, left only Green and Mouton's division. Mouton was killed, Polignac took command. He cut down to one division of infantry, one division of cavalry, and they continued to besiege these people and literally pinned them to the river. A most amazing performance and speaks uh, very eloquently of the demoralization of the federal forces following a battle in which they had really won. In the meantime, Kirby Smith takes Churchill, takes Walker, comes back up here and marches on Camden. Steele finds out that the jig's up here, and he began falling back. 
and resumed his position along the Arkansas River. To all practical purposes, at that point, the campaign's over. And that's about all there is to it, except, as you know, when these gunboats got back to the rapids, the river was down. And they were about to abandon the gunboats and the transports uh, north of the river, and along came a logging operator from what is now Wisconsin Dells, Wisconsin. He had been a logging operator, and he hit upon the idea. He was a lieutenant colonel from a Wisconsin regiment, and he was on temporary duty with the engineer staff of Franklin's Corps. And he suggested that if they would let him build a bunch of dams, he could raise the water and float the gunboats into the deep water below the river. And he executed that engineering feat and is about the only man who got anything like a reputation out of the campaign. At the time I was down there, I looked for remnants of those old dams. One of the old timers told me that when he was a boy, he used to uh, dive off of them into the uh, up river side. But uh, they tell me that in years when the river gets exceptionally low, they can still find an occasional top of a crib of where one of the old wing dams used to be. If you're ever down there, the dam is roughly uh, right under where the present Huey Long Bridge is that runs north of Pineville across the river. By and large, I think the campaign was not a particularly discredit to uh, Banks as much as it was a discredit to some of his subordinates. I think what surprised me about this is Banks looked better than I thought he would when I got into it. His cavalry commander was a very questionable fellow. Uh, Franklin, his corps commander of his biggest corps, is one of those fellows that you read about in history. Everybody said he was good, but always something happened. So I uh, never, I didn't form too high opinion of him. If I were evaluating the officers of the campaign, I would say that Colonel Bailey, who after the war was killed as a sheriff in Missouri. I'd say that Bailey, on the northern side, uh, Dick Taylor and uh, J.T. Green on the Confederate side got the kudos. I think that we would have to concede that Kirby Smith pretty well knew the role of an army commander and handled his forces surprisingly well. I don't think that the general history has recognized the deftness with which he shuttled his troops back and forth. He could be criticized for being slow on getting Green up here. He should have stripped this fellow sooner than he did. If he had stripped this fellow sooner than he did, he might have gotten a decisive action sooner. Now, as far as all the cotton scandal was concerned, the Confederates burned all of their cotton south of Alexandria anyway. And the Navy was so busy ferrying the army back and forth that they didn't have time to capture as much as they wanted to and they were disgruntled at the prize money. I think there's very little uh, discussion of it. The evidence is more in the realm of politics than military anyway. Uh, just for fun, I mimeographed some sheets here. There are a few mistakes in them. That gives an organization of the forces on both sides. You know, uh, 
I don't know how they ran our news uh, before they had mimeograph machines. <laughs> With that thought in mind, I didn't see how I could put on a map discussion here without handing out a few poop sheets. One day out of curiosity, I checked up to see uh, what army commander was the first to have a duplicating machine in his equipment. And somewhat to my surprise, I discovered that it was Oliver Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell had a printing press as a part of his table of equipment. But Oliver Cromwell was a smart general. He knew what to do with it. He didn't utilize it to print poop sheets to harass his own troops. He used his printing press to grind out propaganda to get uh, the Cavaliers to desert to what he told them was a better army. And I think sometimes we would get along better if we used our duplicating machines for the same purpose. I've handed you a um, collection of organization of the forces. There are one or two errors there. That's inestimable. The Marine Brigade, I don't think, is mentioned in there. The Marine Brigade was lost at Alexandria, and it was replaced by a brigade called the Corps de Afrique, which was a, uh, a brigade of Negro troops recruited in New Orleans under a Colonel Dickey. I think that the principal contribution that the Corps de Afrique made was they cut the logs that built Bailey's Dam. Here is a chronology of events. Uh, which also have an error or two in them, but uh, we'll have a good time located. Since I have mislabeled uh, Ransom's division as being from the 19th Corps, it ought to be the 13th Corps. I also have an error in the order of march uh, from Grande Corps. Also, for your amusement and further discussion, if you care to have any further discussion, I think I've fairly well worn you down. I have uh, prepared a sheet that I called Exhibit E. By the way, there are two Exhibit C's, but think nothing of it. That's a clerical error, too. This last Exhibit E, I have called Dramatis Personae, out of deference to our Latin teacher. And in it, I have tried to list the salient figures of the campaign with a brief note on each one, uh, which I'd be glad for you to keep. Now, gentlemen, uh, I'm down to where you do the shooting. Are there any questions? Thanks, General. Now comes the discussion period. By the way, General, if in the future, possibly five or six years from now, somebody writes you from some place in some other part of the country and tells you they enjoyed your talk, you'll know it's the machine. Just don't be alarmed.